Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I'm pretty sure many of you have been to the summit of El Capitan, but I'm also pretty sure that most of you didn't get there via the most direct and shortest route. You probably took the path that follows Yosemite Falls and it takes about 10 hours. El Capitan is a granite monolith that rises 3,000 feet or more than half a mile or about two Empire State Buildings above the Yosemite Valley floor to an elevation of 7,000 feet above sea level. El Capitan was carved out by glaciers about a million years ago and the granite itself is about 100 million years old. Last month, Tommy Caldwell and Kevin Jorgensen transfixed the world by summiting El Capitan via the shortest and most direct route straight up the sheer face of the Dawn Wall, so-called because it faces southeast and catches the full light of the morning sun at break of day. In some places, the granite on the Dawn Wall looks as if the great Greek god Zeus polished it to a high sheen with a god-sized high-speed sandpaper polishing disc. Mr. Caldwell and Mr. Jorgensen climbed 3,000 feet up this polished granite with no equipment except their climbing shoes and safety ropes, also super glue and sandpaper to repair their damaged fingers at the end of the day. They'd been preparing for this adventure for five years and had tried it five times before, before they finally got it right. It took them 19 days to get to the top. The Iwani people who have lived in the Yosemite Valley for 7,000 years called this granite monolith Tutakanula, which means the chief or the boss or the captain. No one seems to remember why they called it Tutakanula, maybe in honor of some ancient tribal chieftain or maybe just because this monolith is so impressive you want to call it the boss. But in any case, when the Europeans arrived in the 19th century, they decided to keep the native meaning and called it El Capitan, the chief, the boss, my captain, the Lord. You've heard of the Lord of the Rings. El Capitan is the Lord of the Rocks. So, this year I'm calling my Transfiguration Sunday sermon at the summit of El Capitan, because Peter, James, and John heard the voice of God and saw the face of God with their captain, with the Lord of the Rocks. Now, when Jesus climbed a mountain to meet his God, he was following a sacred tradition as old as the hills, pardon the pun. Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, and Elijah had done this before him, gone to the top of a mountain to speak with God. Also, Muhammad. I guess this is because mountains are kind of sacred places, right? Maybe this is because they're a little closer to heaven or seem so. Not literally, because we know that from a cosmic perspective, there is no such direction as up. But we feel closer to heaven when we're at the top of a mountain, we feel closer to God. The air is thinner there, right? Both literally and figuratively. 
The curtain separating heaven from earth and humanity from divinity is not thick velvet, but diaphanous gauze, just a translucent scrim. Or maybe mountains are holy because the surfaces are steeped and pitched and vertical. A mountain reminds us that life, literally and figuratively, is not flat as the Illinois prairie or shallow as Long Island Sound, but vertical as the dawn wall of El Capitan, as unapproachable as Everest, and deep as the fathomless trenches of the Stygian Pacific. Literally and otherwise, mountains remind us that it is possible for the human spirit to soar to stellar zeniths and also to plummet to the inky abyss. Mountains remind us that life has a vertical dimension. And so, one day near the end of Jesus' life, my guess is that he has about two weeks to live. He takes his three best friends and goes to the top of a mountain, what he considers to be a holy place, to talk to his God, perhaps because he needs to be close to God in order to be able to endure the ordeal that faces him in the next few days. None of the Gospels tell us where the Mount of Transfiguration actually is, but one guess is the summit of Mount Hermon in northern Galilee, which rises to the impressive height of about 9,100 feet above sea level and is covered with snow for much of the year. Did you know that Israel has a ski resort? And when they reach that place at the top of the world where the air is thin, and so is the curtain separating this world from the next, Jesus' whole appearance is radically altered. His visage blazes like the sun in July at noon, and his clothes are whiter than my beautiful expert Korean Presbyterian dry cleaner Hannah could possibly ever wash them. And what we say is that Jesus is transfigured But that, of course, is a Latin word. What Mark wrote in Greek is Jesus was metamorphosed. You see, I keep trying to explain to you that you know more Greek than you think you do. Jesus was metamorphosed. Jesus morphed like that quicksilver flowing mercury guy in the old Terminator movies. Jesus morphed. Then, a further mystery. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus are not alone. Moses and Elijah, the two towering heroes of Hebrew history, stand there chatting with Jesus. Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, the prophets. Together, the whole sprawling history of God with God's people, the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, who, like Jesus after them, once had their own mountaintop experiences with God. Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, remember when he had to hide his face in the cleft of a rock so as not to be incinerated by the blazing glory of God as it passed by? And then 300 years later, at the same place, Elijah goes to the top of Mount Sinai and experiences the presence of God, not in the whirlwind, not in the earthquake, and not in the fire, but in the sound of a still, small voice that is almost silence. Moses and Elijah, who, like Jesus after them, died 
presumably, or maybe not. You remember the stories, the story of Moses? At the hoary age of 120, Moses wanders off from that wilderness camp to the summit of Mount Nebo to survey like a mountain goat the promised land of Canaan that God won't permit him to enter because of some minor indiscretion 40 years before. Moses goes to the top of Mount Nebo, and that's the last anybody ever hears from him. He never comes back. So they send out a search party to find the living Moses or his decaying remains, and they can't find him. And the same goes for Elijah in that story I just read a moment ago. When it's time for Elijah to pass the mantle to his lieutenant, that's Literally, passing the mantle, that's where the word comes from. When it's time for Elijah to pass his prophetic mantle to his lieutenant, Elisha, these chariots of fire and stallions of flame come sweeping out of the sky and spirit Elijah away to God only knows where. Almost speechless, Elisha can think of nothing to say but, Father, Father, the chariots of God are the cavalry of the Lord. Fifty men spend three days searching for his person or his corpse, but can find neither breathing prophet nor decaying remains. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, did they die? Where did they go? Left no remains behind, but disappeared. Well, as you can imagine, this experience terrifies these three fishermen. Mark tells us that Peter the impetuous doesn't know what else to say, so he blurts out a real estate development proposal. Rabbi, he says, this is very good. Let's pitch three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Yeah, that's what we'll do. We'll build a retreat center with dorm rooms and meditation chapel. We can charge admission. Let's trap this euphoria. Let's tabernacle this glory. Let's ensnare this wonder and immobilize it in resin for the enjoyment of future generations. But, of course, it doesn't work this way. Just then, an opaque, suffocating fog envelops the summit, and a voice from above cries out, This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. And then the fog skitters away. The celebrities, Moses and Elijah, abscond. And Jesus is left alone with his three fishermen friends, just like usual. And then Jesus tells his friends not to speak about this to anyone, not a word. And they go down the mountain for their sad, flat, horizontal journey to Jerusalem. And I think what Mark is trying to tell us is that these mountaintop experiences are wonderful and empowering, but private and ephemeral too. Only three people saw Jesus' transfiguration, and Jesus told them to be quiet about it. Ecstatic theophanies are not the point of the Christian life. They don't travel well. They're not transferable. You can't share them in any way that makes any sense. And mountains are magical and mysterious, but we can't live there. We can't live on these perpendicular surfaces. At the summit of El Capitan, there's only granite, and at the top of Everest, only ice. Life's not sustainable there. We live on the horizontal plane, 
in the valley. It's wonderful to summit El Capitan via the Don Wall, but you can only do that for 19 days and then you have to go home. Faithfulness is not a fleeting and fugitive euphoria, but a plodding, persistent perseverance. A long obedience in the same direction, as Friedrich Nietzsche put it. A long obedience in the same direction. When Dean Smith retired in 1997 after 36 years as the men's basketball coach at the University of North Carolina, someone asked him, so Coach Smith, how do you want to be remembered? What do you want on your tombstone, Coach? And the dean thought about that for a minute and he said he knew a little basketball, did a good job, and lived happily ever after. You a little basketball. When he retired, Coach Smith had won 879 times, which at the time was more than anyone else in history. He had two national championships and was runner-up three other times. He made 11 Final Fours. He had 27 straight 20-win seasons and only one losing season. His first, when he was 30 years old, after which, by the way, he was hung in effigy in Chapel Hill. He coached 30 All-Americans and sent 50 players to the NBA, including Michael Jordan, probably the greatest player who ever played the game. He won an Olympic gold medal and a Presidential Medal of Freedom. How many times was Coach Smith ejected from a game? Three times, or about once a decade. How many recruiting violations did Coach Smith accrue in 36 years? Zero. Most remarkable of all, 97% of his players earned a degree from the University of North Carolina, a fine, fine public university. 97%. Don't you wish they'd pay attention to that figure at the University of Kentucky, for example? I know things have changed in 18 years, but still. Two college basketball deities, Michael Jordan and John Wooden, say that Dean Smith knew more about basketball than any other person on the planet. Michael Jordan and John Wooden. What do you want on your tombstone, coach? He knew a little basketball, did a good job, and lived happily ever after. That was 18 years ago. Coach Smith could not have gotten his epitaph any more wrong. Did you see what the New York Times put on the front page when he died last week? Coach Dean Smith, champion of college basketball and of racial equality, dies at 83. That's how everyone will remember Dean Smith until we all stop playing basketball or stop speaking English. They never said that about Adolph Rupp, whose record Dean Smith broke. They never said that about Bear Bryant. They will never say that about Chief Justice Roy S. Moore of the Alabama Supreme Court. Coach Smith integrated a diner in Chapel Hill. 
He abhorred the death penalty in North Carolina. What do you call the worst human being you've ever met? He always asked. A person who is loved by God just as much as you are. Dean Smith was a member of the Southern Baptist Church until his congregation got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention for ordaining a gay man. His life was a long obedience in the same direction, day by day by day, just getting it right on that horizontal path through the valley. And so at his transfiguration at the summit of Mount Hermon, 9,100 feet above sea level, Jesus' disciples saw who he was and where he came from. But it wasn't until a few days later on a much smaller hill that we really found out who he was and why he'd come. It's just a little bump in the earth, a garbage heap, a pile of shale and rock. It looked like a skull. Plenty of oxygen there. But on that hill that day, the air was so thin you could barely breathe. And it's where we belong too, not among the mystics at the mountaintop, but among the epileptics at the valley floor. That's where we belong too. And that's where we learn definitively that he really is the chief, the Lord, El Capitan. He really is the Lord of the rocks. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.